This Institute of Ideas podcast is called The Personal is Political. Is Identity Politics Eating Itself? And was recorded at the Battle of Ideas 2015 at the Barbican in London. I'm really delighted to be sharing this discussion. The Personal is Political. Is Identity Politics Eating Itself? For those of you who don't know me, my name's Claire Fox and I'm the director of the Institute of Ideas. This is one of the sessions that I was most interested in hosting as part of this feminism and its discontents strand of debates. I was fascinated by the Rachel Dolezal bizarre story of the white woman representing herself as mixed race in America that happened earlier during the year that raised to me all sorts of questions about how we define ourselves And it happened at about the same time that Caitlyn Jenner was being much lauded, once known as the Olympic athlete Bruce Jenner. And it it raised all of these kind of tricky and difficult questions around identity politics. I've just chaired a, a session downstairs, one of the keynotes on why young people join ISIS. And one of the key themes that emerged from a very fine panel of speakers was the issue of identity politics. Young people saying, I identify myself first as a Muslim, and so on and so forth. I think it lurks around a lot of the debates that we have had yesterday and is going to be very much central to a lot of the debates that we have today. Now, is this all a good thing, how we identify? People were saying, well, no, we have multiple identities and so on and so forth. But anyway, that's, that's kind of where we're going. Just, just one sort of anecdote in relation to how, where it can go. I had some friends who were artists um, and they were uh, uh, trying to get some money. So the first thing that happened was when they went to get some funding, they, they came out as a, a women's collective of artists. Then they became the Southeast Asian Women <laughs> Artists Collective. <laughs> then they became the Muslim Women's Artists Collective. And after that, they all fell out with each other and they never got any money. But the point was, was that over a period of years... Their identities were shaped by the funders. Literally, they were told, if you represent yourselves as a women's collective of artists, you might get funding. Then it was ethnicity, then it was religion, and so on and so forth. We recognise that kind of trend. I'm also aware of the fact that this issue is quite sensitive and tricky, and in the course of this debate, someone somewhere in this room is going to be offended, (laughs) which is fine, because, you know, we we all get offended every now and then, but you just have to cope not sulk. Uh, If you want to walk out, walk out. But, you know, generally, try and kind of join in the spirit of the debate. But I I don't want people to hold back from raising difficult issues. I don't want to feel like we're walking on eggshells and say some things, and that includes the panel, we can be as robust as we can in terms of what we talk about. Right. The other thing is, is that the format is it's an in-conversation, and at some point I will shut up. I'm actually just going to get the panel to have a chat. We're all going to talk about this issue, but I'm just going to introduce them first. First of all, I want to introduce Julie Bindel, who is a journalist, an author, a broadcaster, feminist activist. She's a research fellow at Lincoln University, and she's famous because she's banned from every other event and festival and conference in town, in the country, it seems to me. Every time she's about to appear, she suddenly disappears off the thing. If she appears, other people pull out. I mean, the whole... It's a catastrophe. Anyway, inevitably, we wanted her here. That's not the reason why, but it is to note that she is slightly notorious. Right, we then got 
uh, Andrew Doyle, who is a stand-up comedian, a playwright, a biographer, actually has itself got involved in its own culture wars around identity. And there's all sorts of reasons that I could say that he's here. But actually, what really happened was, he was very interesting on a panel in Edinburgh. We went out and had a drink, and a really fascinating conversation about this. I thought, oh, I want you on that panel. Right, so that's what he's doing here. I mean, I'm sure he's an expert in all sorts of things, but I'm just saying. <laughs> Serena Harris is a technical author, long-time gamer. Goodness knows, the gaming issue has suddenly become very embroiled in this whole uh, discussion. She's a regular commentator on issues relating to free speech and internet subculture. She's helped actually conceive of a couple of the debates that we've had over the weekend of the festival. And I follow Sabrina on Twitter, and I always think she's just so robust and clear. We've then got uh, Jake Unsworth, who's a trainee solicitor, convener of the Debating Matters Ambassador Programme. He's very critical of this trend. He probably leads the way in ticking all of the boxes of privilege that you can think of. He hasn't got a shred of credibility whatsoever. I mean, this, this guy is the embodiment of all that we hate. So that's what he's doing here. I mean, he's quite interesting as well. Um, and then finally, Dr. Joanna Williams, who's one of my favourite writers on education, indeed on feminism. She's an academic, education editor of Spike. She's the author of Consuming Higher Education, Why Learning Can't Be Bought. So I'm going to get her to just give us a 60-second, what's your elevator pitch? Why does it agitate you, this uh, identity politics? Well, i just start by perhaps stating the obvious, but I think identity politics is everywhere nowadays. And we have seen it so much this weekend where nearly everybody who speaks in any of the discussions feels the need to uh, preface their remarks by saying, speaking as a woman, speaking as a mother, speaking as an academic. And it's these kind of biological, often biological, but not always kind of assumed cultural identities that really come to define each other. Uh, we use them to define each other. Um, I don't think identity politics is eating itself. I wish identity politics would eat itself. Uh, and I think that there are two key things that I'd really like to bring out today that I think are problematic with identity politics, the way it's being framed today. The first is just it's incredibly limiting. It's about defining ourselves based on the most biological, the most boring aspects of our identity and not being able to move beyond that. This is not transformational, this is limiting. Second thing is that often claims to identity are based on victim status and we become involved in what's termed a kind of oppression sweepstakes where to be able to maintain our identity we have to outdo other groups based on who is the most victimised and I think that's incredibly unhelpful. One very, very quick, final quick point. I actually think the name identity politics is wrong. I think this is nothing to do with politics, I think it's more about narcissism. It's about um, a complete obsession with the self, and we can't relate to the world other than how we see ourselves in it. Okay, thanks, Joe. Uh, Julie. Well, this is probably the last time I'll say this on this panel or ever, uh, but I completely agree with everything that you have just <laughs> said. <laughs> it is narcissism. I lived through the first uh, tranche of uh, identity politics in the proper women's liberation movement which I joined in 1979. The 80s were dogged with it. It was terrible. Um, this is now complete uh, second wave identity politics, but with one key difference. It's not political. There are no politics involved at all. And I think that we can see which groups uh, are given more credence than others, and it is absolutely without any question whatsoever the men's rights activists who speak through the prism of transgenderism who will... Uh, say 
and be patted on the back for saying it, speaking as a trans woman of colour, when in fact they're just a white man with a beard, <laughs> and can shut up, and this has recently happened, when uh, the trans activist Paris Lees, who was raised male, who is white, told Nimco Ali, who is um, a campaigner against female genital mutilation, um, who is black, who is from Somalia, she was told that she was practising white, capital W, feminism, capital F. So if a white man can tell a black woman that they have the absolute authority, the moral, ethical, political authority on something, the world has gone fucking crazy. Right, there we go. She doesn't disappoint, does she? Right, OK. Anyone else? Right, yeah, Andrew. Uh, thanks. Um, I really appreciate Claire pointing out that I'm basically a fraud and shouldn't be here, but nevertheless. <laughs> so uh, Actually, something that Joanna said really reminded me. I, I was recently listening to the radio and there was a talk about bullying in schools and uh, a man who was on there uh, prefaced it with that statement, uh, speaking as a parent, which to me must be one of the most annoying phrases in the English language, basically. Uh, it's right up there with I'm not racist, but, isn't it? It's a terrible sort of phrase to preface an argument with because it implies a couple of things. This really troubles me about this. It implies, firstly, that he has a special kind of authority to talk about this subject by virtue of the fact that he's reproduced. And there's also an insinuation, isn't it, that you have, if you haven't made the mistake of reproducing, that you're not capable of empathising with the child, right? Which to me is really... I mean, I don't because I think they're parasites, but nevertheless, <laughs> I think that... And, that's, and this, this can be applied to all sorts of ways. Once you start saying speaking as a gay man, speaking as a black man, speaking as a woman, it implies all of, the, all, of the, all of that logic is implied in what you're saying. And I don't like the idea that certain people should have the right to talk about certain ideas and other people should be excluded from those elements of debate because I think it's anti-enlightenment. It's against the notion of common humanity. I mean, we, we all have these differences, but ultimately we're, we're all human beings, aren't we? So shouldn't that be the starting point? That's my view. So now that I've checked my privilege thoroughly and found it wanting, I think, is uh, the introduction that Claire's just given me. I think the key question that we now have to ask is, what does it matter? What, what, what does it matter if, if, we're, if we're defined by identity? And the key thing is that it matters enormously. It breaks down debate in a way that means we don't have access to it anymore. And, and what I mean by that is, in the old-fashioned days, you had two choices. You could either engage or you could shut up. Now you have a third option, and that is to silence the person you don't like or silence the idea that they've put out there that you don't want to engage with and you just want to shut them up. Uh, and that's leading to uh, the, the kind of situation that Julie's just talked about, where you have bizarre debates about the, 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 the person raising the idea rather than the idea itself. And that's not the point. The point is to, to argue about the, the merits or, or non-merits of, of a particular idea and battle it out rather than focus on ad hominem attacks, which is exactly what identity politics promotes. And that is the real problem with it. It doesn't necessarily matter that it's so ridiculous and that it's now beyond satire. It's that it is breaking down the barriers, or, or rather raising barriers and breaking down the ability of us all to debate big ideas. Okay. Sabrina. So I want to start by saying that there's a lot of interesting things in intersectionality, and there are, there are some good ideas there. But what's happened is that it's become, it's become distorted. And I think that's because if you're using intersectionality um, as like an academic to see groups of, of um, people and how oppression works there, that's fine. When you start applying it on an individual basis, and as um, we've been saying, when you're using it to shut down people's viewpoints and say, actually, you don't get to say anything. I mean, I've been reliably informed that I am actually a cis het white male <laughs> many, many times. Um, this is something I haven't yet uh, confirmed myself, but uh, yeah. So I think that the, the real problem here is that it's not actually making, it's not being productive, it's, um, it's actually making things quite a, bit, quite a bit worse. I think it might actually end up eating itself because you have this competition between different groups and you can only um, have 
it can only fraction so far. So I think ultimately it will be counterproductive. OK, now, listen, I just want to encourage us all to now just chat, but um, obviously not all at once. But, um, Julia, just, just to come to you, but then sort of just indicate if you want to say something. Your point, um, Sabrina, there that you made about, you know, it can be helpful to know or to see certain things, that's, that's fair enough. But why is feminism particularly in your view, got into this. Mess, right. Because it drives me mad that it's feminism that's leading the pack. Yeah, well, they're not feminists. And they're really not feminists. I mean, we can have this discussion forever about whether Margaret Thatcher was a feminist, whether Beyonce is a feminist, whether Katie Price is a feminist. There may be strong women, they may be vocal, they may have a vagina or they may not, but they are not feminists. Every other social political movement has a basis, has a set of principles and beliefs, right? The working class movement does, the anti-racist movement does, and feminism does. And it is the one social political movement that everybody seems to think they can rewrite and own. And actually it is about overthrowing the oppression that women face from patriarchy, from men, from male supremacy, whatever way you want to say it. These dickheads, these keyboard warriors, these identifarians are not feminists. They are whinging narcissists. And they think that they can identify as feminists because actually we are quite a nice movement. We tend not to chuck the nutters out. Right? We tend to embrace them. This is the problem with some of the left. And I'm firmly on the left. And if you're not on the left, then you can't be a feminist as far as I'm concerned. So you can fuck off. But, <laughs> but when... I think that, 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 it was, that it was feminism that went through this in the early 80s. For example, I was homeless when I moved to London. And I had a look in a, a window and saw that there was a, a room available in a co-op house, in a squat, for a Jewish, lesbian, feminist, vegetarian... Now, I've got Jewish heritage, so that bit was fine. Um, I'm a lesbian, obviously, and I'm a feminist. I say obviously because no man would have me, which, <laughs> right? But I wasn't a vegetarian, nor am I still, and I got chucked out because they found a chicken carcass in the bin. <laughs> so my friend had been round, right? But I used to go around to the Irish house next door, which was the Irish lesbian feminist house, because they always used to come back on the boat from Dublin, and they had whiskey. But at the time, what was going on was... I was chucked out with the chicken carcass because I wasn't an authentic vegetarian and the woman in the Irish house was found to not have any Irish parentage, heritage at all and she was chucked out. So what used to happen then is that we would lie just to get into a meeting, right? There was this thing that was called... Um, it was, it was the fat identity politics, right? So it was like fat liberation. And it, literally, I used to say, do you have a pair of scales at the door of this conference so that if you're thin, you have to pay more? It was ridiculous. But at least... There was authenticity. It was, it was ridiculous. It was mad. But at least there was a sense of political negotiating where you would recognise that um, somebody black might suffer structural oppression compared to a white person. Now, as I say, it's the white man with the beard identifying his arse as black or as female. This, to me, is a problem. But identity politics per se, um, have become so ridiculous that, as you said, they're beyond parody and we need to sort it out. Julie, I just want to say, actually, I think uh, it's the, the people who you might term the proper feminists, the second-wave feminists, who I think are really responsible for a lot of this, because it's the second-wave feminists with their slogan, the personal is political, that have really um, uh, paved the way for the generation of feminists who you're now so scornful of, right, rightfully scornful of. Um, but that, that slogan, the personal is political, and particularly the way that it's played out within academia, for example, basically said that any objective fact about the world 
is is worthless compared to people's subjective experiences and it's how people experience things in a very subjective way that that counts and obviously then you completely lose the ability to evaluate any concept any knowledge any political position because it's all based on your feelings it was really a case of bringing feelings into the classroom and feelings into politics it's second wave feminists who really started this uh, Andrew, just also, well, any reflections on that? But I, but it, I was also thinking about one of the things that, that Julie has emphasised, but that I've also recognised is the old days, but now you have to come up with your credentials. So people do start making them up. And I think that does explain that bizarre <laughs> case in America, right? Which is, is in, and the, the irony is, is that you want to be more oppressed. So it's the toxic mix with victimhood, isn't it? It's like sort yeah. of like... You know, actually, anti-racist. It's not. I, I want to be have slavery in my background because yeah. it's a great yeah. thing that you can drop into the conversation and get brownie points for him. It's like hopeless. Yeah. Someone's like one man going, "God, let there be some terrible, you know, ancestry." You know, we were and so on. Anyway, any thoughts? Well, on that? Yeah, there's. No, I mean, there's. You shouldn't underestimate the allure of being oppressed. Identity politics does seem to lead to this notion of a kind of competition of grievances. I mean, you see it. Uh, all the time. You're not entitled to talk about this because you haven't been through what we've been through, that kind of thing. Um, it, it actually reminds me of one particular incident, which was last November. Um, I don't know if anyone's got any thoughts on this. Last November at Oxford, uh, a debate on abortion was cancelled um, because the two speakers were men. It was Brendan O'Neill and uh, Timothy Stanley, I think. Anyway, the, the debate was cancelled um, by fem feminist activists. Um, and their argument was, um, firstly, that this violated the psychological safe space of female uh, students. So let's leave aside the misogynistic premise that women are incapable of engaging with emotional debate. Um, but it also was because it was two men who were speaking. So this fits into what you're saying, doesn't it? That because they're men. And actually, the, uh, the woman, the lead campaigner was a woman called Neve McIntyre, wrote an article for The Independent, uh, which was headlined, uh, I, I stopped this debate because these men, my uterus is not up for the discussion of these two men. The language of that is, like you say, narcissistic. My uterus. Well, her uterus was never up for discussion, as far as I'm, as far as I'm aware. It wasn't about that. But you can see this kind of claiming ownership of certain topics, claiming certain things in a narcissistic way, which is similarly narcissistic to, oh, I've been oppressed. You know, my great-great-grandfather was a slave or something. Well, you know, we're all mongrels. We've all probably got oppression. Yeah. I mean, I think I, that's what I... Although it was, a, it was a jokey way of introducing Jake, I mean, there is this thing which is... But, you know, straight white boys like Jake haven't got a chance in hell of getting a voice at any table. Now, uh, uh, you could say, uh, well, you know, where is, where is Jake? Who cares? You know what I mean? I mean, you know, I, I don't want us to all feel sorry for him. But anyway, any reflections, Jake, on this sort of broad theme? But I think it is interesting that we sort of basically say, no, we're not interested in you. Come on. No, absolutely. And I, I'm, I'm more than comfortable with people telling me that they're not interested in me. That's, that's fine. <laughs> but uh, I, think, I think I'd like to come back on this idea of misappropriation. So um, when we first coined this term of the person that's political um, back in 69, I think, it was, there was some use to it, or at least there was the theory behind some use to it. But since then, what we've had is we've had a fracturing of the personal. The personal as it was expressed then, was referring to 50% of the population. However, now the personal is used to refer to the 0.0001% of the population who has a certain proportion of XY and a certain proportion of XX. And everybody is so super individualistic, we come back to the narcissism. Yeah. And so the term, whilst it was useful, is no longer useful because of developments elsewhere. And that's where you get this bizarre level of identity politics taken to the, the hundredth nth degree and used to shut down debate and argument on the basis that one person might be offended by something that somebody's got to say.
Sabrina, any comments? Yeah, I wanted to say something about how, um, you know, Brendan was barred from talking um, at, at a debate. And I think that this idea that only certain people can, can talk about certain topics because only they can have an investment in it is really, really damaging. And it's a pretty uncharitable view of humanity to say that, oh, you've got to share these characteristics with me in order to be on my side to fight. How on earth are we going to accomplish anything if we have that attitude? I mean, uh, Julie, come back on, on, on anything you want, but one of the things that I've noticed recently is that I'm constantly told that I sound like a man, and I don't mean my deep voice. Um, uh, what, they, what they mean is you don't, you're not following the narrative. So uh, basically, it's like sort of like, oh, well, you know, if you want to, you know, ape match, uh, you know, uh, masculine values and all the rest of it, because I won't have a lot of nonsense or whatever. I have an argument, but because I don't follow a particular narrative, I'm then accused of being like a man. Yeah, I mean, obviously, being a lesbian, I am almost a man anyway. <laughs> <coughs> but I, I, do, I do actually have to, um, to disagree with Joe about the latest fuckwittery being the fault of proper feminists. Um, the personal is political... Uh, was a very important concept to bring women's experiences out of the private sphere, where we were we were absolutely you know contained, into the public sphere, where women who were individually being beaten by individual men, or had been sexually abused by individual fathers or stepfathers, or who had suffered men's violence uh, because they were girls and women never talked to each other. They always thought they were the only one. So therefore, consciousness-raising groups, which came out of the personalist political, explored the fact that this was a sex-class oppression, that there is a structure called patriarchy, and this is an oppressive regime that, if you roll your eyes any further, they'll probably end up in that ceiling. Anyway, um, that, that women as a class uh, suffer oppression from men as a class. So it was really, really important. And then the identifarians took hold of it. The postmodernists, the Judith Butlerites, decided that there was no material reality in being female anymore. And I'm anti-biological determinist, by the way. I, I believe that social construction is what makes us what we are. So the Butlerites, the postmodernists, they were the ones that messed around with the personalist political and made it anything that you choose to be. And so now what that means is that you can just decide any identity you like. Um, it helps if you're a man to start with. Incidentally, that debate where, the, where Brendan and co were um, no-platformed for being men, they were deeply transphobic. They should have said womb-bearers rather than women because you're now not allowed to talk about having a vagina or a womb or anything that actually does materially really affect women in this society, um, it's womb bearers because trans men, of course, can get pregnant. So it's about who can own the actual uh, label. And trust me, there is not a right for me as a white woman, uh, and nor should there be, to all of a sudden start hectoring at black people who've experienced racism and identify as black. I would be kicked out of that room. But isn't it funny how Bruce Jenner and how... Um, What's your fella who was the boxing promoter? Frank Maloney. They can just say they're women. It's a feeling now. It's nothing to do with any material reality at all. I would love to see an end to the label woman, female. I'd love to see an end to gender. I don't feel like a woman. I've no idea what that means. But I'm told constantly by men that they know what it feels like to be a woman. Joe. 
I actually don't think there was ever anything good about the slogan, the personal is political. I mean, I think perhaps you could argue that it opened up a broader range of issues to debate. Arguably, that would have happened anyway. Um, I think the personal is political was always terrible. And uh, three reasons, and Julie's just outlined two of them very, very nicely. First of all, this idea that it pictures women as a class all women together as a class as opposed to all men together as a class. That's just rubbish. Women are not a class. I've got far more in common with many men uh, than I have with plenty of other women. And by in common, I mean, even in terms of kind of vested interests, if I want to secure a good life for myself, a good life for other people, I'm far better doing that by joining with men than by associating purely with other women. Uh, second reason why I think nothing, nothing at all positive about the personal is political that Julie's identified is that it completely blurs the boundaries between public and private. And I think we're really seeing the consequences of that playing out in a lot of political issues that we see nowadays. So two of the debates I've been involved with this weekend have been looking at the issue of consent, sexual consent. And I think it's this whole notion that the personal is political that erodes the sphere between the public and private that makes things like sexual consent a suitable topic for a classroom room discussion uh, that children should be taught about consent and I really don't think that's at all helpful. Third reason is the thing that I touched upon earlier that it moves the subjective it privileges feelings and subjectivity above rationality and objectivity. Okay. So I have nothing positive about the personal is political. Can I just raise a yes. point about uh, something that yeah, Julie said I think if, if you espouse a kind of social constructionist viewpoint are you not opening the door to the idea of the malleability of identity that you can chop and change and choose what your identity is? Well it depends if you think that gender is innate then you can argue that you're really you've you know you've got a female brain you go to this brain sex nonsense back from the 1950s if you think that gender as I do is a social construct um totally a social construct then what are you swapping and changing I mean I'm a gender abolitionist I'm not a gender defender you're just leaping from one set of socially constructed stereotypes to another and you know wearing a tutu and dr martin boots and a shaved head and tattoos you can think you're all queer and trendy um but actually all you're doing is you're taking what's already been constructed as stereotype feminine characteristics stereotype masculine uh characteristics and and putting them together yeah a lot a lot of this seems to play on stereotypes i mean mm -hmm. the, for instance the um the nus women's conference which was very recent where they passed a motion saying we are prohibiting gay white men from appropriating black female culture, which is predicated on the idea that there are certain gestures, mannerisms and language that only black women should, be, should have. It should be the exclusive domain of them and that, that it shouldn't be the case that other people can approach. And to me, that is peddling in stereotypes as much as anything else, I think. Yeah. But they, they are deeply uh, biologically determinist, all of them. Right. You know, they, they are based on the premise of uh, a lady brain. Um, and of course, the penis on a trans woman is a lady stick. I quote, I haven't seen one for a very long time. But I doubt if it looks that different. Uh, any, anyone else on the panel want to say anything? I think, I think we also perhaps need to touch a little bit more on this point about a crisis of objectivity and about the idea that uh, we've now got down to this point where we have to talk in subjectives all the time. It's the, it's the founding basis of uh, intersectionality. And I think that it has a relationship with what we're talking about. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's the thing that has led to the personal is political becoming so pervasive. But I think that's something we need to elaborate on a little bit. OK. Yeah. Thing. I think one of the other more productive sides of it is how on earth can we solve this? How on earth can we make it slightly better? And one thing that tends to happen with identity politics is that if you're accused of being something, 
sexist, racist, etc. And you say, hang on a second, no, I'm not, here's why. You are kind of feeding into that and you're almost validating it, which is a real problem, I think. So the, how you tackle it is, is something that we need to talk about, I think. I, I, I've actually noticed that myself, that it's sort of, it's, it's so tempting to kind of hide behind that, how dare you, I'm from blah, blah, or I am, and so on and so forth, as a defence mechanism. But you do then start showing each other your scars. I mean, it's like ridiculous. You're like, how many brownie points, and so on and so forth. So there's already a lot of hands. I'm going to take a big bunch. We'll come back. There's a lot of toing and froing, as it were. Sorry if this is a broad and naive question, but to help clarify where the views of the panellists converge and diverge, I'd be interested to know what they think about the following. Is there a difference between who you are, what you are, and what you do? And if there is a difference between, what, between those three things, what does that difference consist in? I don't know if this is drawing away from what seems to be the core of the discussion, but what is very striking in what has been said so far is that, and what is very apparent about this crisis of identity politics, which is very evident currently, is that um, there is, seems to be an absolute absence of a material politics. So when we talk about commonalities, the thing that I have in common with my wife and every other uh, man and woman who is a parent is that, and which is an important aspect of a feminist material politics, is uh, the problem of 24-hour uh, or all-day childcare. And then, uh, so there's two major issues, childcare and the, the regulation of fertility. And what's really very strange for me at the moment, as someone who's somewhat older than this current generation of, of activists, is that uh, there seems to be, in this new feminist uh, 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 politics, absolutely no attention to the things which are most common not only for women or between women, uh, whether they're lesbian, uh, straight, whether they are single, whether they are black or white, uh, when it comes to a major issue which interferes with people's day-to-day uh, uh, -day lives, which is, you know, how do you look after children and work? And also, as a woman, how do you uh, claim control of your own fertility? So there's a really, really major problem there with where the material politics are and how the, how the absence of that divides people along lines of subjective identity. Uh, the other point about, uh, about su the subjectivism of identity is really important. Gender may be a construct, it may be a cultural thing, but sex certainly isn't, because sex has a material relationship to the way in which society is organised when it comes to child-rearing and producing the next generation. Now, what's really interesting about sexuality and, and the idea of it as gender is that it's essentially a form of, uh, of play, right? Now, gender as play, you can have sex with whoever you like, be attracted to whoever you like, uh, has no particular relationship uh, to whether you actually have a, a, a material uh, aspect of society in which the next generation uh, are born and brought up. So I'd like to know a bit more about where material realities and objective material realities come to play in the current discussion. OK, thanks. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah. It seems to me that some people talk about identity politics in the past as something that was good and helpful, and now we have just identity politics gone mad. Also, and... So the idea of um, power as structure, doesn't that lend to the necessity of identity politics to understand power? And so maybe we should look into the idea, uh, what you mentioned and Jana mentioned, that there is a material reality to power, and uh, which is not helped to think about it in sort of postmodern structuralist terms. I'm the author of a thing online called The Origin of Identity Politics, and we've talked about whether it eats itself. My contention is, is that it ate itself from the outset a very long time ago. If you trace the history, it goes back to ideas of Engels about uh, women, and that was wedded together with uh, ideas from Freud, you know, the Frankfurt School business. Uh, that uh, sort of um, um, 
moulded away in academia. Then we got in the late 60s the corruption wholesale by the left in the US uh, of the civil rights movement and Stonewall. And then from 1970, that's when we got identity politics. What identity politics is, is the great backlash by the political left against the mass of ordinary people to solve the left's uh, cognitive dissonance, if you like, because the workers never bought... Uh, a particular left ethos. The w- workers were then retrospectively stereotyped as male, as white, and heterosexual, therefore you champion the opposites. That's all identity politics at root is. It's completely all pervasive, as the panel have said. It ate itself from the outset. It's a complete abomination, and it's, it completely dominates everything. We've got to kill it. I have got no problem with feminism when it's a synonym for women's liberation, but that is not what feminism is. Feminism philosophically bifurcates the human experience. Um, And in doing that, it really is the mother of all the different identities. Um, And I think the problem now is that um, in in doing that, um, it, it kind of posited an alternative to universalism. And for a long time, people upheld universalism. But nobody is willing to uphold that now. Universalism has become male identity. That's what people call it now. Um, And I think that's a real problem because it's not just identity politics. It's that nobody is sticking up for an alternative. Hi, I'm Adam. I identify as a straight white male. (laughs) Um, So I wasn't sure how I felt until I got in here. And I've realized I'm pro the personal is political and identity politics now. Um, because I think that we've reached a point in society where people are actually free to start shaking up the pre-existing set of terminologies or categories. And um, why don't we just let them? Because if people try and silence me based on my lack of credibility, I then have a responsibility to myself and everyone around me and everyone I know to fight back and silence the person back or listen to them even more or whatever I choose to do and I'm free to do that so are they and if they want to assert their credibility by any means they feel is right and good who am I to stop them listen I think that's a very useful contribution because I was going to say as much as I'm enjoying you know identity politics getting a kicking in the real world outside of this room um, most of what this panel has said is absolutely, yeah, her- heretical. Don't you? you're absolutely right. It's like heresy, you know. And it gets you banned from things. It gets you in a lot of trouble. So one of the things I think we have to work out is, first of all, it's perfectly reasonable. You've just said what you've said. I'm sure there's other people in this room who think the same, actually, uh, and they should say so. In other sessions I've been, everyone's been playing, doing identity politics a lot when they've spoken. So I don't want to kind of like. A kind of complacent atmosphere um, in in this room, but I, I'm also interested to know why people think it's so popular. You see it as shaking things up, and that's a way of it can be seen. It, why has it taken hold in this way? Right, is an interesting thing that people might want to reflect on. But anyway, panel on anything that's been said so far. Sabrina, you kick. Okay, off. so yeah. the reason why it's so popular is that this this is. This is Oppression Olympics. People have fun during it. They like the feeling of validation. You can see it everywhere. You see the outrage. You see people, you know, on Tumblr reblogging things and using their identity as a way to, you know, join a group. I think it's very, very personal and, and you do become invested in doing this. 
and that's why. Yeah, okay. Jake, anything you want to pick up? Yeah, I, I'll pick up on that on that last point. Why, why don't we just let them? Because there's there's an enormous appeal in that and it, it, it kind of runs through the people who, who often say that claim to be almost libertarian and that they think that everybody should be able to just do as they please and it might come back to your point, Sandy. The, the, key, the key response, though, is that it has a, a terrible impact and the impact is in the answer to your question, which is we don't talk about the things that matter anymore. What, what it means when you let people have these identities is that you have a conversation based on your credentials as an individual to speak on a certain matter rather than the idea that you have itself. That's, it, it inevitably leads to that intersectionality, which then prevents uh, debate. It prevents us furthering what we know or, or, or our ideas to, to solve only, huge only problems. Only if you let it stop there. If you move past that... It, but unfortunately, that's, that, that, that doesn't happen. And that's what I mean. OK. No, fair, fair enough, but, yeah. Right. Andrew, anything? Uh, yeah, um, I, I think it's interesting what, what you say in relation to what you were saying about the material realities that we have to deal with. I think a lot of people like to identify in this way uh, from good intentions. I don't think necessarily it's, it's, it's a, a malevolent thing. Um, I think, obviously, when you have a subjective experience of something, when you, when you do experience some form of oppression, then obviously you want to take up the mantle and, and fight against that. So the material reality is true. But my point would be, why, does it, why can you not involve yourself in such activism unless you have that experience? Can you not uh, use what we call empathy to, 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 to cross that boundary? I don't see why there should be a, a distinction there. Um, and one of the points, I mean, you were saying, that what, what was it you said? Uh, how do you define who you are, what you are? And, and, what, and for me... Uh, identity, not even identity, but who I, I define myself as what my ideas and, uh, and achievements, those are the things that I think are, are I think, important. I don't think any discussion, any serious discussion should involve uh, the contents of my underwear, right? Mm-hmm. Unless you're on Grinder, right? Because <laughs> then there's a deal breaker. Right? Uh, Julie, then. <laughs> I've always hated identity politics. The last time round, when we were actually at least doing politics, we were out there with placards and banners and making changes, structural changes, challenging things that we needed to change. Um, it went so far with speaking as a blah, 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 that we ended up with this joke, speaking as a headless woman. Yeah. I find that really offensive. Um, I don't see that, that we're that far away from that, to be honest, now. I mean, seriously. I mean, I, I doubt if most people uh, would would laugh if you said that on Twitter now, speaking as a headless woman. There would, <laughs> th- there'd be a new category for you, right? <laughs> Easily. Um, I think that it, it is... The reason why it's gone so berserk is because of, of a lack of, of political organising amongst the working classes, and that's within feminism and out of feminism. Um, and I would argue that that was destroyed under Thatcherism, and many of you might disagree with that, some of you might agree. Um, and so now what it is, it's in terms of feminism, those that call themselves feminists that do this, that are not, they're extremely... And I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to bring an identity in here. They are extremely privileged upper-middle-class born, namby-pamby-pampered little twats. And that is why they feel so entitled all the time to decide what they are, because they own the debate, which is why so many men who transition to female think that they can tell me and other women to shut the fuck up because they know better. So it's being used in the most pernicious, anti-political way. And I do think a lot of it's to do with class, because... When I was doing feminism, when it was, you know, back in the 80s, battling through the identity politics, we still achieved masses of stuff. Um, But we understood it was actually the class that you fight for rather than the class that you were born into that matters. 
um, and we saw the changes that came about. Now, what they're doing is that they're these these women, these young men and women, um, have decided that this is all about their individual rights, not a collective movement. And so their individual right is not to be hurt, not to be offended, and to decide what they are, even if it's a million miles away from what they actually are. Okay, yeah. Um, um, Joe, quick. I think these the, uh, three questions that were posed down here about is there a difference between who you are, what you are and what you do are the kind of key questions which are uh, people are expected to answer nowadays. But I think... I'm not going to answer them, but I think the fact that they are the key question shows that one of the things I think really highlights, um, it drives this debate, is this collapse between the public and the private. And I think this is absolutely crucial. So, so this idea that you can't have a private life anymore, that your private life needs to be out in public, that you need to kind of wear as a, as a slogan on a T-shirt exactly um, who, you, who you think you are and what you do at every available opportunity. And you can't have a, a kind of private sphere and a public sphere, I think it's really important. And I think what that has led to then is this uh, culture of narcissism and this culture of narcissism that, that is shaped by the collapse of the public and private, also shaped by the collapse of um, class politics. I think Judy had a really good way of summarising that. You know, what was important was the class you fought for rather than the class that you came from. Um, you know, it's that collapse of class politics uh, that has helped create this culture of narcissism. And I think the problem, my main, main problem with this, and I think it was really nicely encapsulated in the debate we had just earlier um, about rape culture, is people were asking about material politics. Where's the place for material politics nowadays? Well, it's nowhere because we've got this emphasis on the subjective. So what was said on the panel in the rape culture discussion was it actually makes no difference whatsoever whether the rape rate of rape is one in 50 or one in five, completely irrelevant because all that matters is people's subjective experiences of living in a rape culture. So that, that way that you can completely disparage any objective fact means that material politics just doesn't happen anymore. So my comment slash question, the panel's been talking about the personal and the political as having existed separately before identity politics kind of, but I don't think that it's fair to say that they're completely separate spheres because the personal and the private has always been legislated by the public, by the state, especially in terms of abuse or violence within relationships and that sort of thing. So I don't think it's quite fair to say that these two spheres have even existed because the personal has always been legislated by the state and by laws. And um, so in that sense, I, I don't know if there really is a separation Hi, sorry if this seems to really oversimplify, but I've just left university from all these devilish people you're talking about who um, love their trigger warnings and um, no platformers, all of that. And I'm sorry to say this, but I'm getting real deja vu because you're all the same in that you're just self-affirming each other's views. And, and I don't understand where the real battle of ideas is, where you talk to each other, because I agree with a huge amount of what you say. But I agree with a huge amount of what they say too. And there are people in between who want to get somewhere, who want to, like, find progression, and you're just self-affirming each other without talking. And it's really frustrating. I'm sorry if that seems no, no, rude, no, but... No. Perfectly reasonable, and also that's what I'm trying to encourage. I, I have to say that I chose the panel and I didn't... Let me tell you, you couldn't have those people on this panel because they wouldn't come, That's right. right? So let me assure you, our attempts at organising debates on this subject have got us nowhere. However, we knew, and I do, 
rely on people like you in the audience, and that's why I said earlier that not everyone in this audience is going to agree with this panel. It's refreshing to have a panel that I agree with, all of them in many ways, although there's a bit of tensions uh, on some questions. But feel free, those of you who clap, to speak. That's what it's about. That's why I keep going out to the audience. So you can say you're all agreeing, but what about this? But when you speak, then say what you want to say, not say anything about that. I don't care. Forget them. What do you think? Right, moving on. Right, anyone else? She just made a great point. I was going to say something similar uh, to start off with. But you also, you touched on earlier on what's known as Kafka trapping, where you take, where you accuse someone of something and you take their denial of that as evidence that they are the thing you accuse them of. Uh, you also mentioned no platforming and safe spaces. All these things amount to tactics to avoid debate. And as you said, they didn't turn up today to debate. So how do you debate people who refuse to even discuss? Uh, I just want to make the point that I worry about the word identity politics being used in a very monolithic way, as if it can only mean sort of a, a one type of politics. A lot of the examples of identity politics that we've heard of uh, the victimising languages, the sentence beginning as uh, the examples of censorship are things that a lot of people would really disagree with and be extremely concerned about. But I wonder if we can complicate what identity politics mean to incorporate a whole range of different types of politics. Jeffrey Weeks, when he was talking about sexuality many years ago, wrote about identities as being necessary fictions, as sometimes having a strategic use which you want to use to get to somewhere. And I wonder, and then my question then back to the panel is, if identity politics is this bad thing, because I haven't heard people want to say, well, I like this bit about identity politics, but I don't like that bit about identity politics, how would you want to politicise the experiences of particular groups? Because I worry that if you go down the route where identity politics in a crude way is just dismissed as all bad then we enter a kind of French citizenship-style politics model, which means you can't talk about race experiences, you can't talk about gendered experiences, you can't talk about the fact that Group X is earning less than Group B, or that Group Y is actually repeatedly being arrested by the police, but Group X isn't. Yeah. How can you mobilise around those very real experiences <laughs> without the hideous of the examples yeah. you're talking about, but without then just dismissing identity politics? That's what I think is the space, the challenge, the nuance that a lot of people are really grappling with and want to hear more about. Uh, yeah, on the, uh, on the core question of identity politics eating itself, I think it's a no-brainer myself. I think it's, it's inevitable that it's going to do that. Um, on its face, it seems quite useful. If uh, they were mentioning earlier, you know, if you're talking about racism and, and how the police treat black people, you can approach a black man and say, are you pulled over more than you know, a white man? And that's something a white man will never understand because he just doesn't experience it. So on that face, someone can say, you know, speaking as a black man, and that will add some legitimacy to what they're saying. But inevitably what happens is personal experiences become more important than facts. And especially, it was mentioned at the beginning, uh, Rachel Dolezal and uh, Sean King recently, people were more than willing to defend them, despite the fact that they were openly frauds. I think the most explicit example I've seen of that uh, most recently was in the case of Sarah Nyberg, who was revealed to be a paedophile who shared sexual images of children, but because she'd already established herself as a trans activist and a social activist, people rallied to defend her, despite the fact that it was clearly a terrible person who'd done terrible things. And it was, it was such a great indication of how uh, identity politics has just completely shot itself in the foot. Three things. One, personal experiences are facts. My personal experience is a fact, and it is not to be kicked aside because it's a personal experience. 
Secondly, the idea that there was a period in time where the personal and the political did not existed in separate uh, zones. Total fantasy. Uh, my, my sexual life has been legislated against for centuries, for thousands of years. My, my personal experience, it is a fact. It's a nonsense to think that in some, at some point the political insert, the, the personal inserted itself into political. Even in a non-sexual way, uh, the labour movement is the compound of a thousand million personal experiences. People coming together because they are no longer able personally to tolerate what the, 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 the circumstances they're in. Final thing, identity politics, when properly constructed, because we're all talking about the loony outer uh, bits of it, which makes easy targets for us all, easy peasy, identity politics can and do work. Uh, I don't want to speak for Julie, but I think she's saying that first wave feminism, when women were out on the streets with banners, has achieved something. Coming back to my personal experience, which I reiterate is a fact, gay liberation has had hugely practical per uh, events for gay men and gay women. Identity politics, properly conducted, with a political agenda, with political, develop with political apparatus, can work. And just to kick it to the side because of Rachel Dozal and nonsenses at universities about safe zones and so on and so forth, is actually to throw the baby very much out with the bathwater. Right. Judy. Well, I think that the, <clears throat> the two speakers who spoke about identity politics being real to some degrees to, to uh, disadvantaged or oppressed groups, I would call it political activism. Uh, and, and I would say that it's, as a lesbian, you know, I have been beaten up and sexually assaulted... Uh, because I'm a lesbian. So you, you can't deny also that as a woman, uh, you know, I'm paid less sometimes for the same job as a man, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, of course, I absolutely accept that point. But identity politics is something different, I think. It's about that I am, therefore I am. Um, and it is self-serving narcissism. But, but political activism to, uh, to end oppression of particular groups is totally necessary. But I think there's one really important thing about the no-platforming uh, student nonsense at the moment, which is that they are terrified of hearing anything that they might disagree with, and that's a broad cultural reality. And this worries me far more than idiots standing up with a beard and white skin saying that they're black female. Um, they, they, they absolutely refuse to be offended in any way. They, For example, one of the colleges in the US uh, has insisted on putting a trigger warning and a content uh, note on Chinua Achebe's Things Fall Apart in case it upset them about colonialism and racism. They refuse to look at rape law in case it triggers them about their experiences of sexual assault. What an utter disgrace. The last um, no platforming I experienced, which is all based on an article I wrote in 2004, uh, was ridiculous in the sense that I was no platformed for a debate on whether feminism was being censored. And I was debating... <laughs> And I was debating uh, Milo Yiannopoulos, who is a very proud anti-feminist. They no-platformed me for transphobia, whorephobia, Islamophobia, uh, and, as it says in the NUS student document when they no-platform me, Julie Bindle is vile. Okay. So they no-platform me, but Milo, the anti-feminist, who's written far worse than I have on the transgender issue, was welcome. So it's just a handy tool to shut down the voices that they just don't like. Thank you. Anything you want to pick yeah, up? Yeah, so um, I'd like to also talk about that kind of point. I think 
one of the, the gentlemen raised a question about how do you debate people that won't debate. You can't. There is absolutely nothing you can do about that aspect of it. You cannot make them come to a debate. But what's worrying is that these people are also the same people who are no platforming, who are shutting down the discussion elsewhere, and that is really, really dangerous. So I think we've got to make sure that we um, encourage discussion and debate and that we protect free speech. That's the only way to move the argument forward. Uh, thank you. No platforming was always a sign of weakness on the people who use it. But it was also a sign of weakness when um, there was this suggestion that fascists shouldn't be allowed to debate as well, which I know was a prominent suggestion, I think, Julie, that you supported as well. So it, it, it was wrong then and it's wrong now. Um, but that, that hasn't changed. And it's, it, it's the use of identity politics today. I'm not entirely sure what the, what the justification was for, for no platforming fascists then. I don't know. I'm against no platform. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. She was <laughs> always against. Right, fair enough. Um, it was it, anyway. I'll explain in a minute. Not. Yes, moving on. Joe, sorry. I think we've got to be very, very careful about saying that personal experiences are facts. I think there are some personal things that are facts. You can look at how much someone gets paid. You could look at how many times they were stopped by the police. You could look at how much they have to pay for their mortgage or their rent, etc. And you can look at facts in that context. As soon as we move beyond facts that can be weighed and measured like that, we move into the subjective sphere and then you blur the lines between the subjective and the objective. And it's because that has taken place so much that we can even ask questions like, how do we politicise the experiences of different groups? Which I think is an interesting question. And I think it's, like I say, a question which stems from the dominance of identity politics. I think identity politics just gets in the way of real politics. I think the most important word that's been said in this debate so far was said over here about universalism. To my mind, politics is about winning people over over to your argument. I mean, that's democracy, essentially. It's about winning people over to what you think by having those arguments out with people. But if we're all just defined by our own individual experiences and everybody's individual experiences are so different, then you don't actually ever attempt to do that thing of winning people over to your argument. You're just respecting people for their um, personal experiences. So okay, this... leave, leave it there. Is, my response to that is that sometimes, though, there might be a, a legitimately and, and large enough gap in in the direction of universalism that needs to be addressed by a, a bit of correction and the examples are, are gay rights and perhaps and perhaps feminist uh, feminism as well or, or an earlier feminism it's when it starts to become fragmented to much 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 smaller than that that it becomes so unhelpful but, sorry Claire can I just come back on that very very quickly so if you look at the issue of gay rights for example you could look at the law you could look at inequalities in the law and those are social facts inequalities in the law are social facts the only mm -hmm. way you change that though is not by retreating into a space to say I'm a gay man right. and I experience life as a gay man you have to actually win the public over to your argument right. by saying stop 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 um, can, I, uh, can I just say, I think, I think a lot of the tone of the questions suggests to me that perhaps we haven't drawn a clear distinction about what we mean by identity politics. I mean, we've had the gay liberation movement raised. Uh, Julie mentioned the um, second wave feminism. Uh, these um, mo movements and civil rights movements are largely characterised by empowerment, aren't they? And I think uh, the notion of identity politics as it's being played out at the moment uh, that is prevalent in universities, for instance, is very much about embracing victimhood and about weakness. It's a very completely different kind of thing. I think that's the thing um, that we're attacking rather than uh, the, the notion of civil rights or the notion of politicising personal experience. I think that's the point. Over to the, uh, the audience. Uh, what, one thing I wanted to clarify, or one thing I wanted to clarify was, um, or, or, or maybe disagree with some of the audience, in fact, um, is this idea that the things that have been raised by the panellists are kind of like the loony end of this. You see, 
I, 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 it is not like that now. This has actually become mainstream. That's why it's so... We can laugh and it sounds mad, but it isn't. So in organisations now, in, uh, in part of uh, training, you know, it's... Um, I am Claire Fox and the pronoun I want to identify myself with this week yeah. is it, he, she. And if you don't do that, you can't work there. It's not like these these are these are things that are going on, right? Major corporations are so concerned about putting their foot in it that they're then bringing in these people as trainers to train their staff in the city. I mean, you know, God, the bloody capitalism's bad enough without them all going down that route. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it, this is so it's much more mainstream than you'd think. And and so I, I I know that it's kind of like oh it's only those weirdos on university campuses but for a start of a lot of people go to university now it's a whole generation but it's not just those people on university campuses it's not just on Twitter it reaches its you know you can see it most there it's mainstream in America and it's pro- and for me so for me it's the key political issue because people are saying well we've got to get back to politics well this is politics. For me, defeating this is a major contribution to being able to have a political atmosphere. That, that's one of the reasons yeah. why I, I, I want to do it. And I think that, that, that people... I, I really liked Julie's point about, um, uh, about politics. I mean, it's not politics. We call it identity politics, but it itself is yeah. not, it's apolitical. Um, it, but it is about claims making. It's about saying, I am this and therefore I demand, I am this. And the problem is the establishment now demand that you do that. That's what I was using my example about the Arts Council, right? I mean, if you want to make a claim from the state or from an organisation, get on, what you do is you say, I am in this category, so I want to be promoted. I need to be this. I, I, this is happening. You know what I mean? That's what's happening. Claims making. That destroys the notion of collective action to fight for rights. That pits us against each other. It doesn't allow us the opportunity to fight for lesbian and gay equality, as was in the old days, as we discussed it. I was part of, felt I was part of, not a feminist movement, because I've always had disagreements, but I consider myself to be part of the women's liberation movement. Right? Absolutely. I was passionate about women's politics. Still am. It's being destroyed. And that's why I think we have to uh, re-establish politics. But part of re-establishing politics is to understand what's happened to politics. And this is what's happened to politics. The depoliticisation of politics around identity politics and victimhood. So that's why it's important. Key for this festival. Not some trivial sideshow. I know it's a laugh. But it's bloody tragic, not funny. Right, that's my rant. Um, okay, everyone. <laughs> You're allowed to boo as well. You're allowed to boo. Firstly, this is to Julie, I think her name is. Um, it's back to a, a previous point, which I was going to say in the other questions, but got kind of left behind. And it's um, how can you say that um, people like trans men, second wave feminists, as you call them, like myself, like my friends, like a lot of young people that I know... <laughs> Um, how can you say that they're telling you to shut the fuck up when we're actually based on your original ideals, but we've just wanting to incorporate more and different types of people? 
and then you're sitting there and you're telling them to shut the fuck up. So my question is, do you know you're a hypocrite? Okay, there we go. I don't Ju- get the question. I, I think uh, you, you, uh, Judy said she doesn't quite get where, where's their hypocrisy. Fair enough, you've said it. It's an important challenge, and I agree that it needs to be taken up. But can you just explain the hypocrisy point, just so that we she can answer you properly? Um, the point you made earlier was that all these new age people were telling you to shut the fuck up, but you're literally sitting there and telling them not they they can't be heard because they're wrong. Yeah. Oh, I see. Yes, okay. yes, yeah. Okay, fine. Thank you. That's clarified it. Right. So, I'm not a big fan of identity politics, but I would point out that many of the ostensible responses to identity politics end up reproducing many of the same worst characteristics of identity yeah. politics. For example, uh, the instinct of many anti-feminists is to veer into horrendous men's rights activism. A lot of pushback against sort of neo-racialist thinking looks like, you know, um, sort of grievance-mongering Pujardism of the racist right. Even on the left, you've got a sort of class fundamentalism which ends up looking like uh, sort of identity politics for a certain kind of white male. Um, the conclusion I draw from this is that this, these sort of ways of thinking have become very ingrained in our political culture, and it makes me very pessimistic about the prospects for a pushback against identity politics. I think that's a, a very good point, you know, because politics, and you know, what was described as class politics, is now people sort of saying, I'm from a working-class background. And, and, I mean, this, and as you said, the right erratic, left, right and centre, the men's rights thing drives me mad. It's like victimhood. I mean, it's just ridiculous. I agree with you. Right, there you go. Yeah. Um, hi, I wanted to pose the movement of, like, positive discrimination. And if, like, you've got movements to have, like, 50% women in government and, like, black and minority groups um, getting, like, certain career progressions because of, like, this reduction that they were black or a mi- an ethnic minority um, and I just wonder if this is like a solution or if it's if any like a thing I step back I just want to know what the panel thought. I've still got a lot of trouble with the fact that there's, there's no representative uh, on on the table from from this uh, movement that seems to be so important that, that we're discussing it I really can't believe that I'm not going to c- call Claire Fox a liar uh, obviously because there'd be a lot of trouble but I'm just thinking <laughs> could could you not have tried harder? <laughs> you know? OK, in the interest of engaging identity politics on its own terms, then, I'd be interested to hear if anyone can attempt to resolve two of the most obvious contradictions, to me at least, what seem like contradictions. The first one is cultural appropriation, which is, in my view, a kind of ugly and divisive and sort of static view of culture, whereby certain kinds of clothing or music or art or whatever belong to certain ethnic groups in which they originated as if, you know, the products of art actually belong to anyone, let alone, the, you know, the people that they originated with. They either belong to all of us, humanity as a, as a whole, or to no one, it's non-proprietary. The other one is the gender thing, whereby the identity politics view of gender seems to be gender is a load of bollocks unless you're trans, in which case it's immutable and unquestionable. <laughs> so how do they resolve... How, how is that... Because I don't know. I'm not actually making a claim on that. Basically, how do they square the circle that, for example, take Caitlyn Jenner... If the idea behind identity politics is that women and gender and so on, uh, they experience life the way they do because of their experiences that have led them to be the people they are, that have shaped them, how then is Caitlyn Jenner getting transitional surgery at the age of 65 shaped by the same personal experiences? And in their, in, in their view, no, uh, no less a woman and a woman in no different sense to someone who was born a woman and lived their whole life as a woman. That just seems like an obvious contradiction in terms to me, and I'd love to hear anyone in the audience or in the panel attempt to resolve those contradictions. Okay, thank you. I also want to challenge Claire, actually, on something. You said that actually it's a big thing out there. 
I don't think it is a big thing beyond social science or humanities department and their echo chambers in the social media and the media. But then the question is, why, for example, funding bodies, why do they feel that they have to buy into it? Why do they feel that they cannot stand up to it? And I don't like to make this kind of a conspiracy theory, but I quite agree with that gentleman on the front who said that this is basically kind of the bitterness of the cultural left kind of striking back. And the, and the second thing is, the Tim Hunt case, I think it was a high point in that creepiness because you had someone who was a Nobel winner and he basically lost his job like that. It was worse than a Stalinist trial, than a show trial, because there was not even a trial. But I think I'm quite optimist that after the Tim Hunt case, basically the backlash is now much, uh, much stronger and I think that quite soon, you know, the backlash will be... Yeah, even... Okay, thanks. Yeah, very recently, a new equalities minister in the government uh, set up a new panel and was asked, what's the first thing you're going to look at? And, sh- and she said, um, trans, uh, transgendered issues, um, which is qu- it, it begs two questions immediately, which are very complex and intertwined questions, so I'm not going to attempt to try and answer them because it will take too long. One is exactly why is it now that the elite have taken up identity politics? We've heard a lot about, a lot of good analysis about how this grew up from the left, how it's been taken up by the Twitterati and the, and the campuses. But why is the political elite really hot on this right now? And second, what is it in particular about trans identity that trumps all of the other varieties and, and combinations? As I say, I could answer it, but it would take about an hour. <laughs> Sorry, I just want to say this because I am genuinely confused. What is the difference between identity politics and unconscious bias? Because unconscious bias is the one we're all banging on about in employment at the moment. You know, how many tags they can put against you to say which, which groups you assign to and how they can make sure that they've got the nice, you know, kind of United Colours of Benton going on. What is the difference between identity politics and unconscious bias? I guess my question is on the subject of transgender and non-binary identities. The presumption is that someone asking um, about their pronouns or their identity is that they're politicising you and it's um, a nuisance. I just want to really know where that comes from and why a trans person's life just existing suddenly becomes politicised. Surely they have the right to be autonomous and ask and speak and express. I find it really interesting that you're discussing it on a panel of completely cis people. And I do think there is trans people who would happily talk on this. And I think saying, oh, they don't want to speak because it's no platform is not true because... I stand as someone who has had gender dysphoria issues and does use they-them pronouns. And I'd happily discuss it with you. I think assuming that people don't want to and is really harmful, I think you want to get away from that. So I just really want to understand that. Yeah. So first of all, um, feel free to clap, but just one clarification. I said that the problem that we have in general is that these things aren't debated widely because, as I've pointed out, particularly in relation to Julie, but as everyone will tell you, um, it is uh, she is excluded from things. They wouldn't sit on a panel with her, and then I, I wasn't going to exclude Julie, right? Julie Bindle was going to be on this panel no matter what happened, and I don't even like her. I mean, I, uh, we don't agree. <laughs> what I mean is we don't agree... We never thought in our political careers, probably, that we would even speak to each other. That's how bad it is, right? But she was going to be on this panel and I didn't care what happened after that. So that was one thing. But the other thing, what I would say to you is, it certainly is not a panel of representative types. I was joking about Jake. It wasn't like a sort of thing where I went, 
have we got a trans in? I don't think you have to be like that. I just think if you're going to have a discussion, make it even. Yeah, you know you can't. Even you can't of discuss what? Trans even issues. of what? Even of what? Because even... I think trans people should be able to be in the discussion about them. You know, it's this, it should this be a not, Funny enough, this is the you know. Oh, no, no, yeah, you're so vain. It's, it's not so about fair. trans people. This is about identity politics. Oh, I mean, on the subject of sorry, you've discussed it earlier. Um, just on that subject alone, I think. No, but I. I what it would I'm... be interesting to make it. I, yeah. I mean, you can happily disagree with me. I'm not saying that. I just think yeah. it would be interesting to have. But I'm just explaining the premise on which we put the panels together is not based on going around with a tick box going, have we got a black face? Have we got a trans person? Have we got a... We don't do it that way. This is the Institute of Ideas in which we say the most important reason why someone's on the panel is their ideas. And I'm simply explaining to you... That's fine, but I'm explaining... I agree, that, I agree that we disagree, but I'm just explaining the philosophy of this festival is not like the philosophy of every other festival, which is that we don't walk around thinking about the gender, colour or type of person they are. We get interesting people on panels. I don't care about anything else about them as long as they're interested. If they're boring, they're never invited back. But interesting, you're on. And if you're interested, you can be on a panel next year. Right. Next person. Yeah, next Yeah. Hello. Hello, my name's Edward. First of all, I want to say I'm happy that Julie's here today. I may not necessarily agree with everything Julie says, but I would defend her right to have an opinion. And I think it's, you know, I think it's uh, important that... Uh, I think it's a shame that she's been banned from other events, whatever. I think she should be allowed to say what she wants to say. So uh, there's that. But she did persuade me on one point, actually, and that is the, the keyboard warriors point and the, the, the kind of the Tumblr feminists and people like that. And uh, I do agree with her that they are these kind of narcissists um and uh yeah i don't think we should be too worried about them um i think the real feminists uh, that she alludes to are the people we should be worried about because these are the people who've inserted themselves into various government institutions and uh, universities and so on um so i think those are the the real feminists we should be uh, worried about the the other thing was that she did make one comment about uh men's rights activism to do with trans people I, i must admit i didn't quite understand the point she was making there um, now, I'll just say that I don't uh, identify myself as a, as a men's rights activist because um, I think I would, if I did so, I would fall into the same trap as if I was a feminist, which is I would start mixing with lots of like-minded people and become this echo chamber that people uh, are talking about, you know, and you'd start to become uh, angry and feel righteous. And I just think that's a very negative way to lead one's life, to be honest. Um, but... Everything I've said about men's rights, uh, seen uh, the material that they've put out, um, doesn't seem to have any hate towards um, trans people, as far as I can see. Just want to quickly say about um, widening out. It's certainly not just social science departments or student campuses. I work in the NHS, and it's a slightly different topic, but we want to talk about the prevent strategy and the censorious nature of the workplace and the idea that you can't say that and that you have to report... And it's not just about the the censorious nature of politics now creeping into the workplace where you cannot argue against um, what's considered to be the norm. 
it, it's appalling and it's going to get worse. Uh, okay, I, th I think ultimately um, the reason I uh, have a problem with the notion of identity politics is this notion of surrendering your autonomy, the lack of individualism, the idea of saying that I'm going to identify with a collective and then that's going to define me, I think is, uh, is, is sort of a sort of regressive kind of thing to do. Uh, the other thing that we ha probably haven't talked about a lot about is the idea of a, the way in which offence is tied into, I mean, the lady just mentioned it with the, in the NHS, and particularly I think Claire's point is, is absolutely right, that this kind of thing is not fringe. It is, it is completely mainstream, and indeed, even on the comedy circuit, it's becoming more and more uh, mainstream, the notion that offence can be a legitimate reason not to bring a comedian to a certain place because of something they may or may not say. And I don't, I'm, I'm troubled by the idea that uh, movements for uh, equal rights of various kinds are tying themselves in with the idea of weakness, victimhood, offence, when they should be uh, about empowerment and inclusivity. Uh, first of all, on the whole transgenderism issue, I think it's completely bonkers. I think the obsession with it is absolutely nuts. Um, but I think it's quite a useful illustration of how identity politics leads to this complete disjuncture between ideas and reality and, and also a nice illustration of how narcissism is driving identity politics because essentially it seems to me the transgenderism thing is about saying everybody else in the world has to go along with my fantasies and there's a real narcissism that underpins that notion. Um, secondly, on the cultural, cultural appropriation issue, and again, this ties in with the gender issue, I think they're just terrible, absolutely terrible ideas that make me want to weep. Um, because, again, it's, there's a, an underpinning of narcissism there, but it also just shows how this whole identity politics becomes so fixed and so deterministic. So you have your culture, it's in a box, and you're not allowed out of that box. You're not allowed to aspire towards any culture that goes beyond that which has been assigned towards you. Finally, just on the pushback against identity politics, and um, yeah, completely agree, it's worse. The, the pushback that we're seeing nowadays in the form of MRA, uh, in various other forms, often tends to be worse because it tends to be kind of hyper, hyper, hyper identity politics on acid. And I think the only way that we can truly get beyond identity politics is to make the case for universalism nowadays and to, to uh, look at what we've got in common rather than constantly obsessing about what it is that divides and separates us. I think I'd like to come back to this idea of determinism and the idea that um, identity politics is entirely based on uh, the idea that you, you have a, a very predetermined set of ideals and, 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 uh, and therefore opinions. And if you, if you try to venture out, um, then all you do is invite ad hominem attacks um, against, against whatever you've espoused. And in that respect... I believe that the answer is why um, the, the political elite have taken it up, which is that there's no, there's no way to argue, argue out of it. It's in that way self-perpetuating. And that is also why it leads to us uh, ceasing to, to talk about important issues. And it means that we, we end up in our own degenerating echo chamber uh, of arguing about what people's credentials they have or don't have. Uh, thank you very much, Jay. Sabrina. OK, so um, the... Women raised a question about positive discrimination. Is it a setback? Absolutely, yes, it is. I think, like many things that are related to identity politics, you end up in a situation where you are um, you are obviously being judged for like what you are rather than what you do, and this puts us in a situation where it's it's incredibly patronising for many minorities. It's not really helpful at all, and I think we need to make sure that we. Um, 
that we don't use our identities and we have to challenge this where we see it and protect free speech as well. Thank you very much for being there. We can all clap everyone in a minute. They were all brilliant. I'd like to see um, a return to political activism rather than this split hair nonsense, the Alice through the looking glass type of feminism. It's utterly ridiculous. <clears throat> I do have to point out, though, uh, to, to the person that called me a hypocrite, um, my faults are legion, but hypocrisy is not one of them, uh, which is why I'm constantly in trouble. Uh, I don't want to tell anyone to shut the fuck up. I want them to stop telling me to shut the fuck up uh, based on absolutely nothing. And I, I really look forward to people being braver about this rather than walk around like you're in a combination of The Life of Brian, 1984, and Alice Through the Looking Glass, where you actually are literally being forced to believe and say you believe that black is white, uh, that the sea is the sky. You know, let's be braver. Let's challenge these things. We know it's nonsense. We know it's ridiculous. And we really have to stop being such cowards about it. <laughs> 